the Scoobola Cast. Listen up, normies. It's time to talk some shit. This is the Scoobola Cast, where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. So for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on a podcast, and you're listening to this for some reason, so good luck to you. Let's get into it. been hoodwinked, bamboozled, co-opted, run amok, soldier, white Jesus to pop the empire yep. up, bought the binary, you rendered under Caesar, all cause your cathedrals needed more cedar, you sold up a neighbor, a seat at the table, all for the major goal to hold the scrolls in your favor, share gospel with the slaves, with precision of arrows, with a and 630, and we're back, welcome back to the Scoobola Cast, this is your host, Scoobola Paul, aka, aka, the Witch King of Anura. Uh, well, uh, I've been away for a bit, and, um, I don't really have a reason, I was just not, <laughs> I mean, I do, I, I'm, I have so many jobs, and I'm working a lot, um, because I gotta get that paper, dude, not so I can put it away, but so I can afford to live, we love it, um, I'm gonna take a little sip of this coffee, it's right up at the front for you guys. So refreshing. Um, I am feeling, feeling, I'm feeling things. Um, the other day I had an alcoholic bang. It was vile. I can't even fathom the levels of how disgusting it was. It's bad enough that I drink bang to get through the day. Um, a little sniffles there. Um, it's bad enough that I have to drink bang to get through the day, um, but I'm at that point where nobody cards me when I pick up something that's alcoholic, and uh, I didn't want that. Uh, it, it The thing is with it is it, it's unbelievably sweet. The, it's uh, unbelievably syrupy, and uh, it is for pigs. And it only comes in a trough format. So it's always too much, way too much uh, for anybody to drink, except for uh, pigs. And uh, they already get paid enough in overtime. Got him. That's a little cop cop joke for you. Well, all right. I'm going to take another sip, because you guys are little uh, ASMR piggies. Um, if somebody gives me five bucks when this drops, um, I will do a whole episode. Maybe it won't be like a real episode, but I'll do one in, in, uh, ASMR. Um, but yeah, I'm feeling a certain way because we've got a show today and we're going to hop right back in to the whole thing, uh, that we were talking about, about the greatest commandment of capitalism. Um, but I just want to say again, like, for those of you who have gotten contact with me over the past few weeks, um, where I haven't been uh, posting uh, episodes, uh, it's super cool to hear from you guys, and 
uh, it's a great reminder for me that people are actually listening. Um, so if uh, the Lord, if the Lord impresses on your heart to just send this podcast to a friend or two who are just dying to hear that uh, Jesus takes sides um, and opposes the rich. Um, why don't you go ahead and do that? That would be such a blessing and a help to me. Amen. Um, so go ahead and do that. Thank you so much. Um, I'm always appreciative of the time that you that you give to me uh, on this weird portal uh, into another dimension that's in the internet. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, a third one. God, you guys are so annoying. Ah, oh, that is a tasty cup of coffee. Um, uh, uh, in other news, I got a new job. Oh, I'm going to start the episode, but I got a new job. Uh, I had to say yes to it because I need to afford my apartment. Um, I need to be able to live in it. And COVID's over, so rent's back up, baby. Uh, it's very bad. Uh, okay, uh, uh, anyway, the job is I'm a bar manager for all of the rooftop LA cinemas, rooftop cinema LA, I'm going to be the bar manager, so going to be doing that, you know, just living my life, uh, and it pays pretty well, so, uh, pays well enough that I don't have to get kicked out of my apartment. Okay, <sighs> so in the previous episode, uh, in the previous episode, we saw that Jesus's particular understanding of and faithfulness to the summarization of the Torah um, puts him in an irresolvable tension with religious authorities who primarily serve the interests of the economic and political elites of his day. Uh, loving God and neighbor was apparently fucking, fucking irreconcilable. Um to the first and greatest commandment lived out and embodied by the wealthy and powerful. We also discussed the first and greatest commandment of capitalism or capitalism. I don't know why I fucking did the accent. Anyway, uh, the first and greatest commandment of capitalism, which is the relentless drive to produce and accumulate more and more wealth, or as uh, Daddy Mark says, uh, the ceaseless movement of profit making forward. Uh, yet we also said that this commandment is not something that capitalist bosses, banks, lenders, investors, developers, landlords can simply opt out of. They cannot opt out of the market. They cannot opt out of the coercive nature of the market, uh, r rather, um, because market competition compels them to outcompete one another by accumulating capital faster than their competitors, because if they don't, they risk getting pushed out of the market entirely. Moving forward, the following episodes in this series will focus on the relational consequences and lived realities that tend to materialize in a capitalist world, because above all, our governments, our communities, and our places of work must submit to the one true God of capitalism. Economic relationships are profoundly shaped by capital's faithfulness to this endless economic expansion. And we're going to talk about the relationships between creditors and debtors, landlords and tenants, the U.S. mainland and hyper-exploiting communities like the U.S. colony of uh, Puerto Rico, and between uh, capitalists and the planet Earth, a world whose 
primary goal is to produce more wealth this quarter than it did last quarter to accumulate more value this week than it did last week will materially impact our personal, familial, communal, and global relationships, as well as our relationships with the rest of beloved creation. So we've got a lot um, uh, to chew on in the coming weeks. And uh, uh, in, in the hiatus, I've been preparing sort of I want to get concrete with some historical figures like Castro and Mao Zedong and um, uh, just these folks that you may have heard um, and provide a different picture, uh, maybe a more full picture. So um, just to start off the series, I want us to think about how the first and greatest commandment of capitalism impacts our relationships at work. To do so, we got three things to consider. Number one, the original creation and continual reproduction of the working class or to the capitalist way of dividing and organizing our workplace relationships into two groups, employers and employees. And then the third thing would be how exactly employers, given the exclusive and absolute power at our places of work, end up undermining the well-being and livelihood of working peoples. The entirety of this episode is an attempt uh, to show why workers and employer capitalists are not at all equals. Their relationship is fundamentally hierarchical and why Christian communities ought to struggle on the side of labor against capital. It's uh, good to, in order for the social economic system of capitalism to have emerged in the feudal English countryside some 400 years ago, um, in order for capitalism to have become the dominant way of producing and distributing goods and services across the entire world today, and in order for capitalism to continue its reign into the future over our relationships at work, at home in our communities, internationally, um, and between human beings and the planet. Capitalism had to originally create something that had not previously existed. And that special something is a working class. The vast majority of human beings have not always had to sell their labor to employers or owners of capital, literally for a living before capitalism. The majority of people did not commodify their own labor power by selling it to others. And that is simply because there wasn't a need to do so. The need of the masses to have the few exploiter labor, exploit their labor by pay, uh, paying them wages that are less than the value that they actually produce had to originally be created um, and again and again continually be reproduced. If workers didn't need owners of capital to employ them, then families like the Waltons would not ever have been able to privately and exclusively accumulate some $191 billion by way of buying goods produced by cheap labor in China and paying their Walmart workers in the United States starvation wages. And if you think starvation wages is a little bit too hyperbolic, I, I made a split-second decision to go hy hyperbole or hyperbolic, and I, I mixed the two pronunciations. Anyway, uh, if you think starvation wages is just like, hey, Benjo, you're being way too like hyperbolic here, consider the fact that Walmart has had the audacity to found fucking food drives for their own workers and have asked their employees over the decades to bring in canned goods for their fellow workers. Apparently, families of Walmart workers are struggling to eat. And what are the Waltons to do? They're going to ask their employees to step up and give to a charitable cause. Of course, um, 
uh, while Walmart alone is not uh, is not while Walmart is not alone in paying their workers starvation wages, according to an uh, article published by Business Insider in 2017, nearly one in three Amazon employees in Arizona were on food stamps or lived with someone um, who who was on food stamps. That's about 1,800 people in 2017 in Arizona. And in both Pennsylvania and Ohio in the same year, one in 10 Amazon employees were on food stamps, another 1,000 human beings. And Amazon has expanded exponentially since 2017. This is why the Amazon labor union, what they did in the last week was insane. Because for years, Amazon has been uh, deeply and profoundly exploiting labor. And just now has there been some headway in creating labor, uh, labor conditions that, that allow people to survive. I digress. The point of this is to say that capitalism had to create something that didn't previously exist and continues to depend on the reproduction of a particular need, the need of the majority to have the minority exploit their labor for wages. Because everything in this world is commodified, from transportation to shelter to healthcare to formal education to food to water to insulin to inhalers, if you want access to the most basic necessities for human existence in this 21st century, you're going to have to fucking purchase it on the market. You have to exchange money for it. There is no opting out. If you want to survive, you don't just get it for free. Even if, uh, and so there's something profound to the truism is that there's nothing in life that's free. Yeah, because we made it that way. Workers need someone to exploit them by commodifying their own labor and they need to be exploited by employers in order for the working class to fucking survive. It's either you buy the basic necessities with money or people, and the people who are dependent on them, their dependents will die. Uh, and that total dependence is very, very good news for owners of capital because it's a captured market in the long term. This is very, very, very good news for owners of capital who are looking for human labor to exploit because it's never-ending supply. If you'd like to read a little bit about this historical transition into capitalism, here are three books that I would recommend that in different ways get at the subject, uh, um, subject matter very well. Number one, one is uh, Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Great, great book. And two, The Origin of Capitalism, A Longer View by Ellen Mikesons Wood. And three, Taliban, The Witch, Women, The Body, and Primitive Accumulation by Silvia Federici. I will say, though, that the last book by Federici, um, uh, her work is a bit or considerably more dense than the first two. So I wouldn't recommend starting there, especially if you have a tough time reading long-form technical work. I'd recommend first Dunbar Ortiz and then Wood second. Um, that would probably be the most um, petite and cute way to read those books. Um, okay. So I sneezed while I was holding a glass of water and then I just spilled water all over myself. Um, so I figured out the situation and we're back. Um, 
So before we move on and talk about uh, to the second part of the episode and discuss capitalism's classic structure and workplace relations, I want to define exploitation for a minute because I want to be on the same page. Because for a lot of folks here, maybe if this is the first time you're ever entering into this conversation, um, we either over-import too much meaning into what I mean here, or we un- we it's just too outlandish to hear the phrase capitalism means labor is exploitative. Um, however, with a particular definition of exploitation, I hope it will, will no longer seem outlandish at all, or it will feel um, like, like we can understand what we're trying to get at. So if you're in the car at the office or chilling at the coffee shop, crank up the volume uh, so that the folks around you can hear uh, me say that waged labor under capitalism is all exploited labor. Um, they got to hear it, you know. Um, so throughout history, there has always been a portion of every community who has produced the goods and services that the community consumes in order to survive. And I say a portion because babies cannot produce stuff for their communities, nor are many of our elders able to contribute after a certain point in time as well, which means that the portion of the populations who produces these goods and services can't just produce for themselves, they have to produce extra goods and services. But Marxian analysis refers to uh, this is surplus, so that everyone in the community gets to eat, has clothes to wear, um, has a roof over their head, or, or whatever have you. And when people produce the goods beyond what is necessary for their own survival and their own reproduction, Marxists will call the performance of this extra work surplus labor, right? So they, with their surplus labor, they produce surplus, right? That's... Uh, because that is what the work is literally doing, producing surplus goods or value beyond what is needed simply to reproduce for themselves. Now, most people today would agree that under feudalism, serfs were exploited, exploited, <laughs> serfs were exploited by the lords, uh, serfs were exploited by the lords. And under slavery, slaves are exploited by their masters. But what exactly makes these relationships exploitative? Human labor is exploited when those who produce the surplus goods and services, uh, those who perform the surplus labor are also are not also the appropriators and distributors of the surplus. So let me say it like this. You know, people are being exploited when the laborers are not also the people distributing the profits their own labor produces. For example, under feudalism, lords took the surplus goods their serfs worked up in the fields and distributed it however they saw fit. The producers of these extra goods were not the appropriators and distributors of that surplus. Similarly, under slavery, masters take everything that their slaves produce and distribute the profits however they see fit. Again, the producers are not the appropriators and distributors of the surplus. And under capitalism, as uh, you know, we kind of talk pretty intensely about through the rest of the episode, ex- uh, employers immediately appropriate and possess everything that the workers produce on the job and then distribute the profits however they see fit. The producers are not the distributors. There's a division, meaning wage labor under capitalism, like the labor of serfs and slaves, is exploited labor. The one group takes all the fruits of the other people's labor and gives them a lesser portion in return. That is exploitation. But we can circle back to this a little bit later. 
Now that we've mentioned capitalism's um, <clears throat> creation of working class dependence upon owners of capital for employment, we've also discussed why wage labor is by definition exploited labor under capitalism. Let's spend some time talking about class structure under capitalism and its unique way of organizing workplace relations into two main groups, employers and employees. We talked about this in some episodes a ways back. Um, but the capitalist class structure ends up being way bigger than just our employee, uh, our workplace relations. Uh, first episode, uh, we're going to zoom in and focus on the employer-employee divide. The majority of our places of work, capitalism divide this into two um, two groups: a minority of employers and a majority of employees. It doesn't have to be this way, and it certainly isn't some natural or divinely ordained way of producing goods and services. It simply is how capitalism, or the capitalist way of organizing our workplace relationships, um, and employer and employee uh, uh, systems use, it's this division between labor and capital. So we're going to talk about the differing roles assigned to each group. Um, empl uh, the employers... Uh, which are made up of the board of directors and the major shareholders, they are the ones who do all of the important decision-making with their big boy pants, um, and they decide what the production side will do, um, and they're the ones who will decide what will be produced where, where it will be produced, when, how, how many workers will be employed, and even how long and how hard the employers employees will work. And whatever it might feel like for the employee when we have those meetings where we sit down with the managers and talk about uh, restructuring to hear the employees' thoughts and concerns, even in those spaces, the decision-making is still exclusively the role of the employer. And this goes for the distribution side of the business as well, how all uh, collectively all the produced profits will be distributed. Employers, of course, will replenish the materials used up in the process of production and maintain upkeep with the current machines and technology, and they'll pay the agreed-upon wage to their workers, but after that, the surplus is still theirs to do whatever they wish with. They may decide to take the new profits and expand production by opening up another location. They may choose to buy uh, new technology to increase labor productivity. They may decide to buy a pizza oven for the back of a bar so that uh, the barbacks will be using uh, a pizza oven to make pizzas. They can do whatever they want. They can decide to throw a pizza party for their workers as a way of encouraging camaraderie. They may even decide to give themselves a hefty Christmas bonus or fly all the top dogs to a resort for their quarterly planning meeting. Whatever they decide to do with a surplus is exactly their choice because that is their role. Employees, on the other hand, have a different role. Workers apply their mental and physical labor to the materials and to the tools and to the technology to produce goods and services for their employer in surplus. They collectively work with the means of production to create new products that are then sold on the market. That is the role of the worker, and as we can now see, workers are excluded from any participation in any of the decisioning because that is simply not their job. Unlike the bosses, workers don't get to decide how many people will or will not be employed. They don't get to choose what they will be producing. Workers have no say in how long or how hard or how fast they will work. Um, on the production side, workers have no vote. But same goes for the distribution side as well. Despite the workers collectively producing the new goods and services and, and thus the new surplus value or the profits, workers are excluded from 
and denied participation in the very important decision-making concerning how the profits will be distributed. Because if the worker had choice, they might choose to cut into profits and um, impede growth, right? Impede uh, exponential growth. Um, given uh, they have no say in things like that. They have no say whether or not the profits will be invested in new technology to make their jobs safer and easier, uh, or whether it will be given to uh, as a bonus to the CEO or turned into raises for the workers themselves. Workers are simply to do what they're told because that is the role assigned to them under capitalism. The division of labor between labor and capital is not only a division of roles, it is a division of ownership based on the con unconditional commitment to the exclusive private property. Workers do not own any of the means of production. Therefore, legally, they do not own any of the rights to anything that's produced from it. The property, the materials, and the technology needed for producing new goods and services, um, they own none of it. That's because they do not possess the capital needed to purchase those things in the first place. All they have is their individual ability to work from their energy to their talents. Individual bosses and Capitalist corporations, on the other hand, do possess the capital needed for buying the means of production, but they also own the capital needed for buying other people's labor. And by buying both the means of production and the labor, they exclusively own the fruits of other people's labor. For example, the fruits of labor, the stuff or the surplus value the workers produce every day, every week, every month is alienated from the laborers themselves. The laborer produces something and then they are completely alienated from it. Right? It's, it's taken from them as soon as it's produced. Because to sell your labor for a period of time to a capitalist is also to hand over the fruits of your labor. Under the capitalist mode of production, the fruits collectively produced by all the workers are stripped from their hands, stripped from their control, and are immediately placed into the private ownership of the employer to cut up and consume. So here, we can say that this small group of employers exclusively own the needed means of production, the needed labor, and the fruits produced by the other people's labor. Workers, however, have ownership and control over none of that. So this is what Papa Marx actually talks about. He calls it the freedom of the worker as a double-edged sword. Sure, he says workers in theory, although not always, um, uh, are free to sell their labor to whomever they want. That's free. Again, in theory, yet the working class is also free from having any possession or control over the means of production. This is the unique way in which capitalism produces goods and services throughout the world. Capitalist hotels, tech companies, cleaning companies, construction companies, manufacturing companies, retail stores, schools, restaurants, you name it, are all, are all places of extreme hierarchy and inequality in which um, services and goods are exchanged for money. The capitalist class structure concentrates both wealth and power at the places we now spend some uh, 50 to 60 hours of our weeks in. Democratic institutions' decision-making power is concentrated into the hands of a few. The capitalist class structure is an oligarchy or a monarchy, meaning the few or the one who makes all the important decisions for everyone else at work, which is how Walmart workers and Amazon employees can produce billions of dollars for their employers and go home hungry at night. Uncertain of whether they 
and their families will have food to eat. And the inequalities of power and wealth don't stop at the boundaries of the workplace. Wealth and power increasingly spiral upwards into the hands of our ruling oligarchs. There's a reason why in 2018, 10% of U.S. Americans over 70 per, own over 70% of the national wealth, meaning the bottom 90 has access to less than 30% of all national wealth. There's a reason why one in six U.S. Americans are hungry. At the same time, in 2016, the average total CEO compensation of the largest 350 firms in the U.S. was $16 million, which every year is uh, $16 million every year, which is roughly $300 or $400,000 a week. And... Uh, the concentration of wealth and power is, of course, global as well, and we'll get to that. And those are the numbers from 2016, which are considerably higher now, um, as the poor got so much poorer during the pandemic, and the rich got considerably richer. Uh, uh, so we're going to get to the global effects of this in a later episode. But for now, having laid out the capitalist class structure and division of labor at work, let's wrap this all up with what capitalism's first and greatest commandment means for those forced into the subjugated and inferior role of the worker. Capitalism's organization of labor at work and the capitalist primary allegiance to growth not only divides us into two groups— of employers and employees, it pits them against one another. And as we've said in the first episode of this series, capitalists are ultimately subjected to the first and greatest commandment of capitalism, the unceasing movement of profit-making, the endless expansion of capital. At the end of the quarter or the end of the month or the end of the year, the capitalist has, ha has to have received back more than what they put in. That's what makes their money capital, as opposed to simply just being money, because money is not the evil. Capital is. Whereas workers exchange labor time for a wage that is less than the value they produce, capitalists exchange their money for commodities like the means of production and la human labor so that they can get more money back for their original investment. If they don't pursue the maximization of profits, they risk being pushed out of the market by their competitors entirely. Entirely. And because of the coercive laws of competition, which constantly drives the employer to ceaselessly expand and grow, capitalists have had few options as to how they can achieve this profit maximization. As you can imagine, in places where power is concentrated into the hands of a few, as opposed to, say, I don't know, being democratically shared, the costs and the consequences have always been and always will be levied upon the workers. It's a system where the power of the few is enabled by the power of the many is constrained. We shouldn't expect anything less. That will not change without force. Employers are driven to maximize the return on their investment in order to remain capitalist. Here are a few ways, just a few ways, that our bosses do that. A boss can increase the working day because time is money for the capitalist. And the more hours the worker works, the more surplus they can produce for their employer once they've produced the value of their wage. Everything else will go into the box that are, that's inaccessible to us. Another way to expand your surplus as a capitalist is to maximize labor productivity. There are several ways the boss can do that. Number one, work the labor harder, push them to their limits, require them to do more, increase the intensity of their work, track their every move and minute on the job because when a worker is on the clock, their body no longer belongs to themselves, it belongs to the capitalist. 
Therefore, every minute must be efficiently spent, producing profits or to invest in new technology. Technological innovation and the revolutionizing of the means of production can drastically increase workers' capacity to produce profits per hour, giving the capitalists a leg up against their competitors, if that, uh, that is, if they're the ones ahead of the competition. Uh, technology will help them to do that. But it also means that the bosses may not need as many workers next quarter. With the latest technology in the industry, there might be a decreased return of investment. There may not be as much of a need to have the staff that they have. In the name of God-given rights to pursue profits or in the name of human advancement through technological innovation, here come the layoffs. Number three, just because a majority of the workers weren't fired when the new technology increased, the labor productivity, um, it doesn't mean that the remaining workers will see any of the financial gain. In fact, what often follows is the repressing of wages, if not outright slashing benefits. This has been a defining characteristic of capitalism within the neoliberal era. Uh, the most obvious example of this, which we've already talked about, is the widely known fact that profits have continued to soar over the last four decades, but the real wage of middle-income earners has gone nowhere, while the real wage of low-income earners has actually dropped, meaning despite workers producing way more profits for their bosses today than workers could in the mid-1970s, um, you know, there's there's the meme that like a, a, a McDonald's Sprite would kill a peasant in the, in the 1800s and the 1600s. Yo, the work that we do today, like the, the long hours that we work, would would kill would kill a peasant, right? Workers have seen literally none of these gains. And so um, the, the $16 million CEO packages uh, are made possible because workers are, are repressed from, their, uh, from wage increase. Capitalists will try and blame the conditions of the working class on impoverished immigrants stealing jobs, or they'll say that it's the robots that are your enemies and they fund the robots. But all this is a scam to distract us from seeing how the system of capitalism concentrates wealth and power into the hands of the few, excluding the majority, and have uh, in having a vote or a voice. Um, but you get the picture. The first and greatest commandment of capitalism is detrimental to the health and well-being of working peoples, their families, and their communities. Individual bosses... Uh, aimlessly pursue profits for themselves, and for the last 400 years, their success is often juxtaposed with the well-being of the working class. It's not just that capitalism has failed to solve hunger and homelessness and poverty and even, even treatable disease. We've seen how the, the, the march of capital has uh, caused COVID to soar in the United States. Um, and then we have to make uh, myths about other countries uh, lying about their numbers in order to make sense of what we're experiencing. It's not just that capitalism has failed to ensure everyone access to even the most basic needs for human flourishing. In an era of unprecedented degrees of luxury and wealth, capitalism's hierarchical class structure, uh, its concentration of power at our workplaces, pits human beings against one another. How is the system not a fundamental concern of Christian discourse? Fuck. I mean, like, it, it's so... We have to think about this seriously. Capitalism compels people in positions of unequal power to violate the dignity and well-being of others. Ultimately, for their individual gain, it infects Christian institutions from giant churches to small churches to parachurch organizations to summer camps. 
It feeds on and exacerbates the anxiety and stress and suffering and agony so many uh, people are unnecessarily experiencing. The only thing trickling down today are the costs and the consequences that result from establishing hierarchies at our places of work. Where the fuck is our moral imagination? A system that divides us into superiors and inferiors, peers and subordinates, the haves and have-nots, is no system of Jesus. Not the crucified one who is executed for organizing against the violent brutality and inequality of his day in the religious and the imperial institution. Capitalism's first and greatest commandment of endless growth and ceaseless expansion has material consequences for the masses of working peoples. And as Christians, we have to say this is fucking enough. We must refute whatever laws and rationales that are used to justify capitalism's outright degradation and dehumanization of the people of God. People do not have to be exploited. There is an alternative world that is possible, but you and I, as followers of Jesus, are gonna have to fucking fight for it. And we're gonna have to struggle for it together. Man. Really gets ya. Um, so friends, thanks for listening. Thanks for continually coming on to uh, the online world to, to listen to me say words. Um, if you found today's episode meaningful, send it to your friend who is like, eh, capitalism's not that bad. Um, burn Babylon down. See you soon. Yeah.